Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Steve. It's good to be with you this morning. Encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Second Peter as we work our way across this New Testament book, Second Peter. We started out in looking at the book, noting that Peter is talking about maturing in Christ, spiritual maturity. And he told us in chapter 1, verse 3, that each and every believer is equipped with everything that we need to live the Christian life. So in verses 4 through 11, he says, now let's do it. Let's go. Let's pursue growth, spiritual growth, spiritual maturity. As he came to chapter 1, verses 12, through the end of the book, he motivates us in two ways on the spiritual maturity. One way is that he says Jesus Christ is coming back. We want to be found by him, living for him. And then he also reminds us that the word of God is a source of truth. It is a reliable testimony to the person of Jesus Christ. Having in chapter 1 encouraged us on to spiritual maturity, he then moves to chapter 2 by talking about a major hindrance to spiritual maturity. That there are false teachers out there that want to actually pull people away from Jesus Christ. Just because someone claims to be a Christian does not mean that they are. And Peter says these false teachers are insidious. They infiltrate. They are in it for themselves. They are self-centered. They are desiring to pull people actually away from Jesus. He introduced us to them last week. And now today, writing to people who are most likely very discouraged... Discouraged by the onslaught that seems to be coming toward them from all directions. Feeling like they are the minority. Peter writes to remind them and us of a couple of truths. One, God will actually judge those who stand in rebellion against him. And God is always faithful to his people. He always delivers them from trials. I'm going to read chapter 2, starting to read in verse 4, down through the middle of verse 10. You follow along in your copy of the text and look and see how Peter is stressing those two truths. That God will bring judgment upon those who reject him, and he always delivers his people from trials. Chapter 2, starting to read in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of in of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation 
and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Peter's day. Most likely those that read this letter were discouraged. Feeling like everyone around them was oppressing them. Was trying to pull people away from Jesus whom they loved. Living in a culture that was against God and the things of God. And Peter here wants to encourage them. Wants to encourage them that, that God is faithful to his people. And even if you feel alone, even if you feel oppressed, the Lord is in control. My wife works for one of the high schools in our area, Lindmar High School. And the school system in all of the elementary schools has what's called a buddy bench. A buddy bench is a place for grade school students to go when they start feeling oppressed. When they feel like they are in it by themselves. When everyone around them is just attacking them and they just feel alone. So you go to the buddy bench and that's a a cue for other children to come alongside and encourage you. Why, that's a cute little girl on that bench. She kind of looks like me, doesn't she? That's my granddaughter, Eloise. (laughs) Had to take a chance to put my grandkid up on the picture. Here, Peter is saying, I know there are times when we feel alone. There are times when we, we feel oppressed by everything that's happening in our culture. Just think about today how it is so oppressive that sometimes as Christians we feel more and more marginalized. More and more in the definite minority in the culture in which we live. And yet Peter says, don't forget two things. The Lord is going to bring judgment against those who stand in rejection of him. And he's always faithful to deliver his people from trials. To bring that point across, Peter, in verses 4 through the first half of verse 10, is going to share those two truths in one sentence. You know how sometimes in the original languages in our Bible... The wording is very complicated. Verse 4 down through the middle of verse 10 is one Greek sentence. The main part of the sentence does not come until verse 9. Now our English translations try to break it up so that we can find our way through it. But in the original language, it's one sentence. With a bunch of modifiers in verses 4 through 8. And then the main point in verse 9. This sentence would be something like, uh, okay, the Bentons have a goose problem right now. I went home Friday afternoon. There were over 250 geese in our backyard. So I could come up with a sentence for my wife. If we have a goose problem. And if those geese are destroying our property. And if 
a second dog would help keep those geese away, then the Bentons need a second dog. Now, what's the main point? The Bentons need a second dog. My wife's not buying that, but that's that's the argument. The main point doesn't come till the ways down in the sentence. And that's what happens here in these verses. The whole first section, verses 4 through 8, are if statements. And here's what Peter wants to do. In verse 3, Peter has made a comment as he introduces this issue about these false teachers who are infiltrating, trying to pull people away from Jesus. He says, don't forget, their judgment is sure. He put it this way in verse 3. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. God hasn't got asleep. He has a plan. Their judgment is sure. Four, verse four. Meaning, now he's going to explain that statement. And he's going to do it by proving it from the Old Testament scriptures. He wants to give us an example from the Old Testament. In fact, he gives us three examples from the Old Testament of God reserving people for final condemnation and judgment. In verse 4, he's going to give us the illustration of sinful angels. In verse 5, he's going to give us the illustration of the ancient world at the time of the flood and Noah. And in verse 6, he's going to give us the illustration of the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Three illustrations of how God reserves people for judgment who stand in rejection of Him. He's also going to give us two positive examples of how He always delivers His people from trials. The positive statement, the positive picture of Noah at the time of the flood and of righteous Lot at the time of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So this is his point. The Old Testament shows that God judges sinners and preserves the righteous. That's his point. Let's look at it. Verse 4. 4. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. It's impossible possible to be totally sure of that to which Peter refers here. Some Bible scholars believe that Peter is referring to Satan when Satan fell from heaven and drew some of angels with him as they rebelled against God and passages like Ezekiel chapter 28 verses 11 through 19. That could be a possibility. I think more likely this is a reference to Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 4 because the other two past, other two examples here are also from the book of Genesis. There's a natural progression. And here in Genesis 6 chapter, excuse me, Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 4, we have this passage that's so hard for us to get our arms around. It's that passage where it says there's these sons of God who saw the daughters of men as beautiful and cohabitated with them and the Nephilim were born, these giants in the land. Most likely, in my understanding of that passage, we had angelic 
heavenly beings who rebelled against God, who inhabited the physical bodies of human men and had relations with women on the earth and these Nephilim were born. It's my best explanation of probably what's going on in Genesis 6 and what's being referred to here in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Here's Peter's point. These angels who sinned, Peter says they have been cast into hell. Now, it's not the best English translation for that Greek word here. The Greek word here is the word based on Tartarus. It's the only time this word appears in the New Testament. We know from writing, Greek writings of the time of the writing of the New Testament, that Tartarus was considered to be a place of punishment, of torment, and most likely what it is is a holding cell for these these angelic beings who sin until Satan's final judgment is done, the great white throne judgment is done, and Satan and his forces and all of those who stand in rejection of the person of Jesus Christ are cast into the lake of hell, lake of fire or hell forever. Here, Peter says these sinful age, sinful angels, they are being reserved for judgment. Go to verse 6, example number 2 of the fact that God will bring judgment upon those who stand in rejection of him. He talks about the ancient world. Now you remember, in the book of Genesis, for example, in chapters 6 and 7, we find this account of humanity being so sinful that God decides to wipe them out with a flood. Except... Noah and his family. Here it refers to Noah as a preacher of righteousness. Think about the ridicule he would have taken as he prepared that ark from his neighbors. Look what that crazy guy is doing. Noah was a righteous man. And it tells us, and we know from Genesis chapter 6 verse 18 and Genesis chapter 7 verses 7 and 13, that Noah and his wife... And his three sons and his three wives, those people were preserved. That's why it says here in verse 5, he and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So we've had two negative examples so far, examples of the Lord reserving condemnation, judgment, punishment, upon those who stand in rejection of him. Sinful angels in the ancient world at the time of the flood. The third example comes in verse 6, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Wicked, wicked cities. We know from Genesis chapter 19 that God poured down burning sulfur onto those cities. Genesis 19 verse 24. It says he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. Three examples. God reserves judgment, condemnation upon those who stand in rejection of him. There's also two positives. He always delivers those, he always delivers his people, the righteous, from trials. 
We see it in verse 5 with Noah. And we see it in verse 7 with what Pete, with who Peter refers to as righteous Lot. Now if you remember back to the book of Genesis, we kind of remember righteous Lot? I mean, in Genesis chapter 19 verse 16, it tells us it's time for Lot to leave Sodom and Gomorrah. And they basically had to drag the guy out of there. It says in 1915, when morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him, and they brought him out and put him outside the city. Lot is called a righteous man. And just as in true is as true in the Old Testament is true in the New Testament, the only way that people can be right or righteous before God is by faith. We can't be a good enough person to be right with God. Being right with God is not contingent on our abilities. It's not contingent on our performance. It's contingent on faith. Lot believed in his God. Lot, it tells us in verse 8, by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. How often do we feel that? In our culture in which we live today, we feel like we are in the minority. You cannot turn on a television without being blasted with sin. It used to be in the evening between like 7 and 10 o'clock that programming would be quote unquote family appropriate. Now, you can turn on a network television show and have what God calls sin depicted as what's the norm for today. It's oppressive from every direction. Here it tells us that Lot felt that. Even though they had to drag him out of Sodom and Gomorrah because living in a sinful place had an effect on Lot's heart. Here, Peter's point is, God was faithful to righteous Lot. Lot being righteous, not by his performance, but by his faith. And so, Peter makes this point. Look at the Old Testament. God brings judgment on those who stand in rebellion against him. God delivers those who are right with him. One of the common objections to God today is how could a God, a loving God, ever condemn someone? How could God punish someone? How could God do this to Sodom and Gomorrah or the world at the time of the flood? I can't, people will say, I can't believe in a God like that. 
And it's important for us to remember who God is and that He has the right to deal with His creation as He chooses. In September, uh, the news show 60 Minutes aired a program that highlighted a an electrician in France who just happened to disclose that he had a hundred million dollars worth of Picasso paintings in his house. Needless to say, the Picasso children want them back. They, their argument is, this was our father's work. You have no right to have these paintings. You stole them. Now, the answer to that question will probably never be known on this earth. The electrician says, and his wife says, we were close to the Picassos. Mrs. Picasso gave us the artwork. Mr. Picasso and Mrs. Picasso appreciated us. They gave us this artwork. Now, whoever's telling the truth, we don't know. But I can say this. The artist has a right to do with his creation what he desires. If Picasso wanted to give that artwork to his electrician, go for it. All the electricians in the room would say, yes, that's a good idea. Hug your electrician today. Give him $100 million worth of fine art. But if Picasso wants to, he can give it away. If Picasso created an image and it was hanging in the Louvre for 10 years and then decided, I don't really like how that turned out. I'm going to just tear it up. He has the right to tear it up. Quite frankly, I don't like his stuff, but some people do. But he is the creator. He has the right to deal with his creation as he sees fit. And one of the things that's important for us to remember is that God is in the position of creator. He has the right to deal with his creation according to his will and desire. I want to highlight two truths about God this morning. The first truth is simply this. He created, he has authority over his creation. He created, he has authority over his creation. If you want to, I'm going to turn back to Genesis chapter 6. That's the passage that talks about these sons of God finding the daughters of men beautiful. In verse 5 of chapter 6, It says this, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He is the creator. He has the right, the authority over his creation to deal with them as he sees fit. If he decides to tear up his creation, he has the authority to do so. 
Secondly, the second truth about God is that he is absolute holiness. He's completely separate from any kind of sin at all. He is, he is the standard of right. He is the right standard. And because he is completely set apart from any kind of sin or defilement, he has the right to demand that of his creation. For example, in Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 through 45, that is the, the point being made. Leviticus 11, starting the reading of verse 44, it says this. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. For I am the Lord who brought you up out from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. God has the right over his creation to demand holiness. Absolute holiness. And it's easy for us to kind of rationalize and say, well, I'm almost completely holy. I, 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 can, I almost do everything that you say. And then we come to a book of James in the New Testament. And James says, you know what? You could obey every single law of the Old Testament and disobey one. You're guilty of it all. Here, we are reminded that God has the authority to judge humankind. He has the authority to rule over his creation because he is creator. And so Peter makes the point. God judges those who stand in rejection of him. He also reminds us that he delivers the righteous. You know, it's important for us as Christians to remember That God never says that he's going to prevent us from going through hard times. Prevent us from ever going through trials or hardship. In fact, we can almost call it a theology of suffering. That the New Testament teaches the opposite. That it is part of God's good and best will for us that we do go through times of trial. Passages like Romans chapter 5 verses 3 and 4. James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 6. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 12. Have a, teach a theology of suffering. For example, I'll just read those verses out of James chapter 1 in, in, in the, uh, verse 2. Very counterintuitive. It says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now that's counterintuitive. James says, we should be joyful when we are in times of hurt, of pain. When we feel like we are being pressured and pushed down all around us. James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith... Produces endurance. 
So here, Peter, consistent with the theology of suffering that we see in the New Testament, says not that God will prevent us from suffering, but rather, just as is true in the Old Testament of Lot, is true of us, that he will deliver the righteous from trials. So Peter makes all of his if statements. If God's judgment is sure on the unrighteous, like sinful angels, like the mankind during the time of the flood, like the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and if it's true that he always delivers the righteous from trials, like Noah and Lot, then, verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. That's the main point. God keeps the unrighteous under punishment, but rescues the righteous from trials. Now I want us to look closely at verse 9. Then the Lord knows... How to rescue the godly, my New American Standard says, from temptation. I think the King James does as well. And the Greek word translated temptation here can mean that, but it also can mean trials. That's actually how Peter uses the word in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 6, a verse I just referred to when he writes, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various Trials, that's our word. It's also used in 1 Peter 4.12, the same way. I think the better translation of this verse is how the English Standard Version, the ESV takes it, how the NIV takes it, how that New Living Translation takes it. When it translates this verse in verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. He's always faithful. He's always faithful in delivering his people through trials. Not keeping them ever from experiencing it, but delivering them through it. Sometimes not in our timing. Sometimes not in a way that we understand what he's always doing. But when we get far enough back, we can look and say, he has been faithful. In delivering me. In delivering us. Through the trials that we experience. But Peter says this. To those who are reading this the first time. And to us today. If we're feeling oppressed. If we are feeling like the minority. If we are feeling like our culture. Our society around us. Is under attack trying to get their agenda foisted upon us, making it almost impossible to live for Jesus Christ. If that's how we feel, Peter says, don't forget, verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Now that is actually written as a present tense. It's saying 
that the Lord is doing that now. That He's actually keeping the unrighteous under punishment. And remember specifically here, these verses are geared toward these false teachers that were introduced in verses 1 through 3 that will be specifically singled out and described as we look next week in the second half of verse 10 down through the end of the chapter. So these ones who are standing in rejection of Jesus Christ and not only rejecting Him, but actually trying to pull people away from Him. They are oppressive. They are insidious. They are secretive. They infiltrate. They are in it for themselves. They're trying to pull people away from Jesus. Peter says they are being kept. He's keeping these unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. How can that be? We look around and we say, well, it looks like they have everything that they want. It looks like their life is going great. I think the best explanation is found in the first chapter of the book of Romans. If you'd like to turn with me to Romans chapter 1, we see a description in Romans 1 of sinful humankind. And in verse 21 of Romans 1, it says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them over, in the loss of their hearts to impurity. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Look at verse 28. And just as they did not sit, see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. It's as if God says, you've stood in rejection of me, you are following down this path away from me, you're exchanging me for things for created things instead of the creator. Therefore, go for it. I'm going to turn you over to the path that you have chosen. And it's important for us to remember that sin destroys. Sin brings destruction. We look around us today and say, oh, that person's got everything. Everything they could possibly want. They must be so happy. No, they're not. When you follow a path away from the Father, you are following a path that only brings one thing. Destruction, pain, hurt, and in the end, destruction, condemnation forever and ever. The last three summers, as my wife Barbara and I have been traveling to the East Coast, um, every summer we walk just a little bit of the Appalachian Trail. I kind of have on my bucket list that someday I would like to be a through walker, going all the way from Georgia all the way to the end of the trail in Maine. I will never do it. It takes an average, the average person, it takes them seven to eight months to make that through walk, and I'm way below average. I, I know I will never do it, but it's kind of fun just to get on the AT a little bit at a time. And so Barbara and I have walked the AT in New Hampshire, in Georgia, 
in Tennessee, in North Carolina, and in Virginia. And a year ago, when I was on the AT in Tennessee, I was walking along with Barbara, and coming the other direction is a man and his daughter. Now, it's very apparent when you come across a through walker. Usually you can tell them before they even get there because of their smell. Um, through walkers, they've been on the trail for months, they don't smell good. They usually don't look good. They're unkept. You, you just, you, oh man, you are a through walker. I could tell you're a through walker. I mean, that you can just pick them out. In fact, we saw one guy that I think he is starting to kind of lose it mentally. I think he'd spent a little bit too much time by himself. He's a through walker. That's kind of what I want to do. So I decided these people are interesting. Let's have a conversation. So I, I started talking to this man and his daughter and, and they were way behind schedule. They started in Georgia. We're there now they're in Tennessee. They realized they're so far behind schedule that by the time they hit Maine, they're going to be in the winter. And so well, their plan was to go to Virginia, get onto a bus, take the bus to Maine, and then work backwards back to Virginia so they'd miss the winter, but they could still hike the entire trail. Pretty ingenious. I thought that was good. Now, I was intrigued. Here's a man and his daughter doing this together. How many daughters would want to spend seven to eight months every day with their dad, adult daughters, seven to eight months, walking 20 miles a day. How many daughters would choose to do that? I would say the vast number of daughters in America today would probably say, you know, I could think of some things that would be more fun than that. I'm not sure I want to spend that much of my life with my father. Um, I have other things that I want to do. I have other things that I think will bring fulfillment to me. Uh, no, I don't want the path that my father has for me. I want to go out on my own path. But in so doing, maybe not consciously, but in so doing, they would miss out on everything their father has planned for them on the path that he has invited them to join him on. And here Peter is saying, you know what, there's, there's paths you can take. The path to follow the Father's will comes through Jesus Christ. And to be on that path, you enter into a relationship with the Father and you are his adopted son or daughter and he promises to you on that path, it's going to be hard, but he always delivers you from any trial that you find. You could take another path and it may look like it's going to be a lot more fun, but actually the reality of sin is actually a form of continual punishment all along that path. Because sin breaks down. Sin destroys. Sin is not fun over the journey of the path. And so Peter wants to remind his readers, I know it's hard. 
I know we're feeling oppressed. We feel like we're in the minority. We feel like we're being marginalized. We feel like everyone is attacking the person of Jesus Christ. It's almost impossible to live for Him anymore. Yet, don't forget this. Those who stand in rejection of Him, the unrighteous, they have one sure end. Condemnation. Eternal punishment. And also don't forget, for those who are right with God, He's always faithful to deliver. Now we've already said that it's impossible to have right standing with God by what we do. I mean, Lot certainly had been affected by the sinful culture where he lived, and yet the scripture still calls him righteous. Well, how is that possible? Because he believed. It's the same thing for you and me today. We don't have right standing with God because of what we do. We don't somehow earn right standing with God. We have declared right standing with God through belief in the person of Jesus Christ. At the moment we put our faith in Him, we are declared to be right with God. He adopts us as son and daughters. He clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. We are righteous before Him. Not by our own merit or our actions, but because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. And if you are here today, and you look at a passage like this, and you don't know which category you fit into, are you on a path walking away from God? Where God says the end result of that path is a sure condemnation? Or are you on the path with the Father through Jesus the Son? If you're not sure of which path you're on, I would encourage you today, one of our leaders from here at Faith Bible Church will be back in the prayer room directly behind you. You can just say, hey, can I have some of that material Pastor Steve was talking about? Because we can give you some material. You can go home, you can take out your Bible, look up passages that assure you Help you see how you can know that you're right with God. Through faith in his one and only son, Jesus Christ. You see, Peter wants us to be encouraged. In a sense, he's joining us on the buddy bench. Even though sometimes as Christians today, we feel like we're all alone. Peter is on that buddy bench with us. He's got his arm around us and he's saying, listen, don't forget... Those who are standing in rejection of Jesus Christ, even though it seems like life is great right now, they are already under punishment. And the end is sure for them. Condemnation. And don't forget that we have a faithful God who doesn't necessarily keep us from trial, but He is always faithful to deliver us through it. Unrighteous, false teachers face a sure judgment. But the Lord delivers those who are made righteous through faith in Jesus. Father, I thank you for this passage, for the hope that it brings us, and pray that even if there's one person here today who is not sure of their standing with you, that you would help them see through your word that our standing doesn't come by what we do, but through faith in your one and only Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.